Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the NSAC Coffee Hour interview series. In this interview series, we hope to learn from a broad range of people closely associated with STEM PhD life. Professors, scientists, alumni, staff, administrators, and others. The goal is to get to know the fascinating journeys, stories, and experiences that got these people where they are today. This week, we had the pleasure of interviewing Professor David Goh, a Purdue alumni who's currently the Rooney Family Collegiate Professor of Engineering and the Department Chair of Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering at Notre Dame University. He is a leader in the fields of plasma science and engineering, heat transfer, and fluid dynamics. He's won multiple awards for his work, such as the Air Force Young Investigator Research Award, the NSF Career Award, and others. In this interview, we trace his route from Purdue to Notre Dame and the life lessons he learned along the way. So without further delay, here's the interview. Uh, good afternoon, David. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. This is very exciting to uh, interview one of Burke's own. So, um, of course, this Coffee Hour series is to get to know staff and alumni on a more personal level. So if you don't mind, let's just dive right into your story. Let's start off with your childhood. Where did you grow up? So I grew up actually in the shadow of the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. So about two and a half hours north of, of West Lafayette, where you are. Um, spent my entire life there until uh, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame and then started to move some places. Nice, nice. So, you know, being near uh, universities in the academic setting, as, as a child, were there any childhood experiences that guided you towards the path that you are currently now on? Or would you say that your childhood was pointing you towards a different path? I would say what, what probably had the biggest impact was I had the fortune to go to a, a small Christian school for my middle school and high school years here in South Bend. And there were a number of teachers that I had that were former college professors or had PhDs. Um, and so I got to be exposed at a you know, relatively young age to people who are really at sort of the highest echelon and, and look at the world from that perspective. And so at that time, it kind of just seemed logical to me that I might as well get a PhD too. If I'm going to do anything, I might as well aim for the top. <laughs> no, of course, of course, I can see that. So, you know, you really did aim for the top. You uh, attended your undergrad at the University of Notre Dame. Now, of, of all of the majors you could have chosen from, you chose mechanical engineering. Why is that? So that's a great question. It, it's funny. I didn't really even feel that math and science were subjects that I was very strong in until probably 10th or 11th grade in high school. Um, I was more interested at the time in humanities and communications, actually, uh, quite a bit. And so those classes around that time, so that was trigonometry and physics and chemistry, where I really started to blossom intellectually and appreciate sort of my natural talent. When I came to Notre Dame, I looked at two opportunities. One opportunity was, was to study math. I'd uh, always been interested, um, since I started to get good at it, in sort of the theory of math and the abstractness of math. And so I looked at a double major in math and music, and then uh, I realized that would take me five years to do, and I didn't have the money to pay for five years. So then I backtracked. And then at, talking to one of my math teachers in high school, he made it clear that if I really liked calculations, the calculative part of, of 
math that that's really more applied math or engineering. And so then I, I switched or I did switch. I just decided to major in mechanical engineering at that point. Nice, nice. So uh, of course, uh, a few of the professors that you had during your mechanical engineering experience are still there teaching <laughs> mechanical engineering. Uh, I myself have been taught by you and professors that you have had. So over the course of my undergrad, I had many insightful conversations with my professors, including yourself, that guided me towards where I am now. What would you say some of the insightful conversations you had with professors were back in your undergrad that guided you towards where you are now? Yeah, so so there's a few different conversations that come to mind. Um, one is Professor Bill Goodwin, who's currently a colleague, and this is less a professional conversation, but he taught me controls. And in the very last class of controls, he talked about the importance of not being one dimensional as an engineer, about having other interests, exploring other interests and becoming well-rounded. And I, I very much took that to heart. I um, am interested in, in a lot of other things outside of engineering. And, and so I think that has definitely had a formative impact, if not a professional impact. In terms of sort of disciplinary impact, uh, I remember a conversation with Professor Mihir Sen, who's now retired. Uh, he taught me fluid mechanics, and that was one of the first classes I really gravitated to, um, where I just I felt more of a natural uh, alignment with than perhaps other types of mechanics courses. And so he advised me on what types of courses to take, what types of um, research I could partake. And I ended up doing research with Professor Tom Mueller, who's also retired. And that really kind of set me on the path towards getting my PhD. So I would say, say, you know, a conversation with Professor Sen about fluid mechanics and what's interesting in fluid mechanics and what types of classes I should take put me on one path. And then um, on a more personal level, just a core classroom experience with Professor Goodwin. And then after I left Notre Dame, I spent three years at GE. And when I was discerning whether to return for a PhD, I had a really great conversation with Professor Franken Corpira, who's also retired. And he's really the reason I ended up at Purdue. Um, we talked about my interests, my desire to become a faculty member, uh, my research interests, and Purdue wasn't even on my radar. He put it on my radar, um, and I am very happy he did. Nice. No, that's great to hear. So on the topic of, of industry and then pursuing a PhD, of course, uh, after you graduated with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, you went to work for GE. Uh, but you, you were talking about how a lot of the uh, influences you had were kind of steering you towards a path, a path on a PhD. So what made you decide to pursue industry first? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, when I was an undergrad, and this is true even today, right? One of the things I, I want to do is make as well-informed decisions as I could. And so I started doing undergrad research pretty early uh, after my sophomore year, but then I wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing something. So I did an internship with GE Aircraft Engines, now GE Aviation, after my junior year, and they offered me a full-time position. At that time, I knew I was going to get a PhD. So the question was, what was my path to getting to that PhD? And I was really considering two options seriously. One option was to go to GE where I knew I'd get some great experience and they would pay for a master's degree through the Edison program um, with the intent of always returning for my PhD somewhere. Uh, 
-hmm. The other option was actually not to go straight to my PhD, but to take a year and do a year of service. And I explored something like 30 or 40 service programs, programs like AmeriCorps and things like that, um, to get a sense of, of sort of whether I had a future in teaching. I wanted to, to explore that opportunity as well. And so um, I, I looked at those two, but it was, they were always a path. They were always a path to, to, to getting my PhD. I settled on the GE path just because um, I was excited about, you know, making sure I, I understood how engineers worked in the real world. The fact that I'd get my master's paid for um, and the fact that I would actually have a salary. <laughs> All of those things were, I think, exciting to me at the time. Hi, Mary Jo. So, it is great to see you. <laughs> well, speaking of, well, we have Mary Jo here, which is, of course, one of the uh, the cornerstones of, of Burke community itself. And of course, you as an alumni of Burke, you were there uh, getting your PhD in the uh, mid 2000s. What was your first impression of Burke when you walked in? Uh, of course, you had just been in industry. You've been exposed to a bunch of different people, a bunch of different views but the setting of academia tends to be a little different. So what was your first impression when you arrived at Burke? Because Burke uh, started off around 2006. So did you immediately jump into Burke or was there a little transition that you uh, had to go through the step through the halls of Burke? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I, I came to Purdue in 2004. So when I started, I was doing all my research in the mechanical engineering building on that engineering quad um, on the main portion of campus. And then Burke opened in 2006, and I was part of the first cohort of students that came in um, and opened it. And so my first lab in the mechanical engineering building was in the basement. And my first office was the, like a converted copy room. And there were like five of us stuck into this office. So when I got told I was moving to Burke and I walked over to Burke, I was like, what crazy space age building is this? This is incredible. <laughs> like. You know, it, it was it was just a positive experience because it was this a major upgrade. Um, but then I think the thing that was truly impactful on, on my life at Burke, besides the facility itself, was that the way the graduate student offices were organized. Um, I was placed with a lot of my peers who were doing similar research, and a lot of my peers who had very similar interests. Um, Baratunda Cola, uh, Aaron Franklin, uh, Tyler Westover. A number of us went on to faculty positions. Uh, so we're interviewing at the same time and many of us have stayed in touch since. And so I think that is really sort of my, my most fond memory of, of Burke is sort of that community that formed by having those great student offices. I presume they're still there. <laughs> yes, no, they're, they're still there. Even even during this pandemic, we uh, we, we still have everything going strong. So uh, in terms of the uh, the community at Burke, of course, you talked about how there are people with similar academic interests that were in your offices. Of course, Burke is centered around the notion of interdisciplinary research. Um, on the topic of research, would you mind giving the audience just a little taste of, of what your research was like? In Burke, what did you do for your PhD? Yeah, so at the time I was working um, on plasma-based cooling devices. So there, I, I think some of you might be aware that there is a NSF U 
UIURC, University Industry Something Research Center, um, CRC, Collaborative Research Center, called uh, C the CTRC, the Cooling Technologies Research Center. And so I was a part of that, and I was on a project where we were trying to take these small plasma devices, and these are low temperature plasmas, the type of plasma that you might see in a fluorescent light bulb or in a plasma screen TV. And we are trying to use them as cooling devices. And the, the physics of it, I can get into another time. But um, the real goal was to miniaturize these and make them as small as possible so that you could just literally fabricate them into a cooling device for uh, microelectronics, such as a laptop or something like that. So, so my research had essentially three components. One component was um, building what I would saw, call mesoscale devices that were millimeter scale. I could construct them by hand um, just to prove the concept. One was looking at developing microscopic uh, or microscale devices. Uh, spent a good year and a half in the clean room <laughs> um, uh, developing those to show that we could scale them down. And then the third component was simulations. And so I would, uh, I was writing a lot of my own code as well as using commercial codes mm -hmm. to uh, predict and analyze the performance of these devices. I see. You know that that's very great to hear. The um, you said you came in knowing that you wanted to pursue professorship eventually. So, what would you say uh, to the audience, the graduate students here that are pursuing uh, to look for a tenure track after they graduate? What advice would you give them? Yeah. So one of the things I would say, um, I, I I could probably talk about this for several hours in and of itself. One thing I would say is that you have to be very intentional about it um, for two reasons. Number one is that it's a challenging career, but it's an extremely rewarding career. I was just looking up a survey of the top 10 best and top 10 worst careers in the United States, and being a professor is, is in the top 10, as it has been for you know several decades. But it is also very challenging. And so it is not a career that is should be anyone's backup plan you should want to become a professor and in doing so put in the time and energy to learn what that means I, purdue one of the great things you have is a preparing future faculty course you should definitely take that and it will explain not only sort of the the, the nature of academia from a, the view of a professor but how to achieve a position in terms of applying and interviewing and then how to manage one and, and that was extremely important to, to my personal preparation for being a professor. The second thing I would say is, is if this is your intent and you've discerned that this is the career that you want, tell your advisor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> your advisor is gonna be a great example for you and they can provide guidance, but they can also provide networking for you. Um, I'll give you an example. We're hiring this year in my own department, and we had about 570 applicants. Wow. Right, so it's extremely competitive. Mm -hmm. Right, but if I know someone's advisor and they reach out to me and say, "Hey, student X is going to be an outstanding professor. You should be considering them." That that helps that resume or that CV rise to the top of the pile. And so, definitely get your advisors in, get involved, get your um, committee members involved, let them know. Um, and very, very rarely will a, a professor not want to help you, right? right. <laughs> we want to replicate ourselves. <laughs> and so, so this, to us, this is a great thing. 
The third thing is, is a skill I'd say you need to start developing and start developing early on. And Barra Cola is actually, um, he articulated it really well in an interview with Forbes magazine this past week. And that is learn how to do a lot of things at the same time. And so it's very easy when you're a graduate student to just come in and you put on the blinders and you are running your experiment or running your simulation. And that's all you think about and that's all you care about. And that's what your life is day in, day out. That can't work as a professor. As a professor, you have to be able to teach and write a proposal and work on a paper and mentor a student and serve on a committee all at the same time. And so you have to learn how to do that effectively and efficiently. And it could be that you work in 30 minute bursts where that 30 minutes you work hard and you accomplish a lot and then you take a break and then you hit another 30 minutes on something else. Um, so it's not the same what I would say drawn out singular focus that that the PhD is. And I've seen faculty struggle who weren't prepared for that transition. And so start preparing yourselves now. Become a members of clubs and things where you have opportunities to develop other important skills like leadership and communication skills, but that also take your attention away from sort of your primary responsibilities. It'll make you focus more on your primary responsibilities and learn how to juggle multiple responsibilities at once. Sounds like multitasking is definitely a skill to have when becoming a professor. Now, as you mentioned yourself, you've seen some faculty members, some new incoming faculty members struggle a little bit with this. Of course, you went from being a graduate student to being a professor who advises graduate students. Now, of course, that is a that's a big transition. Can you elaborate a little more on what it was like, you know, one day being a graduate student and then <laughs> the next day advising those who want to be just like you, essentially? Yeah, that I mean, it was a transition and I would say it's I'm still transitioning um, in many ways. Um, I, I would say there's there's two aspects of the transition that are awkward. One is you are advising someone who might be just a few years younger than you, right? And you hold a, a significant influence over their uh, professional uh, career. And so that's a little bit awkward. And then the other awkward part is I'm sure most of you are in groups that are very large right now. And so you have senior, uh graduate students or postdocs that when you entered you know they were there to mentor you they were there to give you guidance when you're starting as a professor you don't have that you don't have a large group you don't have a large group dynamic um i remember group meetings my first year consisted of me my graduate student and an undergraduate student <laughs> there were three of us and i would have group meetings and then individual meetings with my graduate student and it was hard to distinguish why i needed two <laughs> right but but so so I would say, yeah, there's some awkwardness to it. I, I would say the key is, is is being confident but humble, right? Be confident that you've trained well, that you've learned from your advisors um, how to give advice, how to give guidance, and how to steer someone towards success. And then be humble about it. Recognize that this is your first time out and you're going to get it wrong and it's okay. Um, uh thinking that you're going to do it right the first time out is perhaps a little arrogant <laughs> and, and it's just unrealistic and so i think in general you, you just have to, to to go at it with confidence and then be humble about it but i think that's true about virtually everything 
being a professor. First time in the classroom, first time writing a grant, first time writing a paper. Mm -hmm. um, and the key to me is that the, the people I admire the most, they retain that humility throughout their entire career. They don't let it fade as they get more confident and more accomplished and, and more familiar with, with these tasks. They maintain that humility. And that I think is a great quality. So speaking on, on more about the qualities of professor, of course, you, you went from master's to PhD. You became an assistant professor, an associate professor and beyond. You were fully tenured track. And a couple of years ago, you were the uh, director of graduate studies for the University of Notre Dame. Um, on that note, what are some of the uh, the improvements that you that you think could be made to graduate engineering programs that you saw and maybe you made yourself as the yeah. director of graduate studies? So so I should just clarify as the director of graduate studies for our program, not for the entire university. Mm -hmm. um, but still, we have about 150 PhD students, so it's, it's not a small responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that this is a multi layered question. And, and some of it is well beyond um, what students can even influence and impact. But I, I think the biggest thing, one of the biggest things that I focused on and, and I've been a part of uh, working closely with our, our dean of our, our graduate school as well as the provost on this, is creating a more positive en environment for graduate students where they are empowered in their role, right? I think historically, and this is in large part because of the nature of, of funding and engineering. Um, graduate students are looked at as employees. You're paid a research stipend, typically by a grant. Uh, if you can't conduct the research or conduct it to the level that it's needed, you can be fired, right? And that's not really what an educational institution should be doing. First of all, you're not being paid your market share or your, your market value. Right. There's no other student with a bachelor's or master's degree that's going to be paid $30,000 to do a full time job. So that's it, it's a false equivalent to, to treat um, or to even think of engineering graduate students as um, as employees, unless we're willing to admit that we are really bad employers. And then the other thing is that because we have this sort of, I would say, historic view of they're there to serve the research grant. Um, then the, the development of the student was not necessarily at the forefront of the advisee advisor. Now, there's many advisors who put that at the front and those are the best advisors. Those are typically also the same people who have maintained that level of humility throughout yeah. their entire careers. But there's certainly others that hadn't. But the reality is you have, you, you have uh, some power here, right? Um, and you should be empowered and the institution should ensure that you're empowered to be um, mentored well and to be advised well and to be developed holistically and not just as an employee or a wrench turner or a knob turner in a research program. And uh, you should be vocal about it. And so one of the things that we started doing is is we we did something we call get on the same page. It's a questionnaire that students are supposed to get with their faculty and make sure they're aligned, right? That they're talking about what their academic goals are and their professional goals are and whether they want to become faculty member and what their timeline is, right? 
so that a student who thinks that they're ready to graduate at year five isn't told, no, you still have four years to go or three years to go mm -hmm. because a professor is thinking, well, I still got a grant that needs work on it, mm -hmm. right? And so I think um, having that open communication and, and knowing that you have, you are empowered and allowed to have a say in, in your education is important. Right. The, um, the, the path, I mean, the, the qualities that you were talking about are qualities that you're looking that you look for in professors nowadays and of course this is a uh, 2021 you became a professor in 2008 so what would you say is vastly different from seeking professorship back then to what it is now or has it just been the same no it is it is it is vastly different um in the sense that the market shifted and so the market took a hard shift right after I took this position at Notre Dame. I took a position, uh, I interviewed while I was still a PhD student. I literally defended on a Tuesday, walked in my commencement on Saturday, moved to Notre Dame on Monday, right? And so I was as fresh as you could possibly be. Uh, I had two papers published, two papers in sort of process, um, there is no way I would make it to the interview stage with that record now. And one of the reasons is that in 2008, there was the financial market collapse and we went into a worldwide recession and a lot of schools stopped hiring. And there was a hiring freeze for, um, or a trickle, let's say, of hiring from about 2009 to 2011, 2012. So what happened to all those people with faculty aspirations? They went and did postdocs. So then when the, the faucet started to open again and people are looking for positions in 2013, let's say, the people who are fresh PhDs like I were, were now being compared to someone who had two to three years of postdoc experience. And the records just weren't comparable at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would say the market is more challenging now because of that. And we get in applicants whose records you look at and you think wow they're almost at a level of tenure with some of their publications and things like that and so i think if you're gonna if you're planning to to go for a faculty position you just have to recognize the realities of that and um start planning you know plan for a contingency of a postdoc or a transitional position as a visiting researcher or something like that um, and again, have those discussions with your advisors. They are interviewing faculty at Purdue all the time yeah. as well. They understand the realities of this as well. And they can give you a lot of advice about when should you go on the market, when shouldn't you, um, and how to sort of navigate that entire process. Uh, would you say that the position of a postdoc at a academic institution versus a national lab, do they weigh differently? overall or it depends on what you want to go in oh i think it really depends and it depends on the nature of the postdoc what we're looking for when we are hiring faculty is someone who can develop their own independent research ideas that are going to be impactful in their research community that's really at the heart of what we're looking for mm -hmm. um, along with that um you know, they need to be excellent in the classroom. They need to be an excellent colleague. But the reality is 
if you can articulate and and clearly communicate innovative and novel research ideas that have the potential to be impactful in your community, you probably can be have the same skills to translate into the classroom. That's not 100% true, mm -hmm. but that's that I think is um, is is really true. And so, you know, you can go into a postdoc where you're in an academic institution, but the postdoc advisor again is perhaps thinking of you as an employee. They have a project that they just need to get done. Maybe it's a DARPA project or something, an industry-sponsored project where it doesn't allow you to expand your CV with with papers. They don't give you an opportunity to sort of develop that skill of of being creative and determining or defining research or, or directing a research. And so that's not a useful project at the same time or a useful post at the same time. You could go to a national lab where you are afforded those types of opportunities. And and so you're developing the skill set that we seek in faculty. And so I would say it's certainly a case by case basis. And there's good postdocs and there's bad postdocs in both academic institutions and non-academic institutions. On, on, the, on the topic of creativity, uh, we have a question from our audience. It reads, how do you develop your ability to have good research ideas? And how do you evaluate that an idea is good? Ha, that is an outstanding question. Um, so how do you develop an ability to have good research ideas is, in my mind, first wanting to, <laughs> right? So, so that's not an ability, right? But you have to, you, if, if you're not innately, innately curious about the world, you'll never be able to develop good research ideas. So, so you have to, you have to be curious about the world. How do you develop curiosity, right? Is you you learn about the world, you read. Um, I tell my students, you know, they should be not just reading journal articles based on whatever paper they're writing, but they should be reading science blogs and Scientific American and um, I would say Mechanical Engineering Magazine from ASME, although that one's not very good, but IEEE Spectrum, um, Science, uh, you know, the, the journal Science, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? the magazine Science is like 50% editorials. Right, talking about futures of research and, and things like that, and then 50% actual research content. Right, that's you. You got to be sort of consuming that information, and allowing that to fester and and mature and um, and grow inside you. And then that's how new research ideas come about. Right, is that you you see a challenge in sort of perhaps your core discipline, but you know you read about some interesting stuff in an adjacent discipline, and you can start to pull that in. You can start to pull in those details and see how that, that couples to it. Um, so I think you just gotta be, be really interested and curious about learning a lot about a lot, and then go do it. Um, now, how do you evaluate a good idea? That one's a lot more challenging, right? And it all depends on, I think it depends on a lot of things um, in terms of how you define good, right? Uh, and so in, in the in academic sense, this is really tightly coupled to the way funding works, right? right? And so a good idea that you want to present to something, someplace like ARPA-E, um, which is the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, you, ha you, you have to be able to demonstrate that it has 
true impactful feasibility. That means look at the economics of it. Look at the um, sort of cost per per whatever unit that you put in that comes with it. And if you can't do that basic assessment or you do it and it's bad, then that's not an idea that's appropriate for RPE. If you have an idea that is much more fundamental and exploratory in nature, then the right organization would probably be the National Science Foundation or perhaps Department of Energy Office of Basic Energy Sciences or something like that. So in that case, what you're looking to do is, is make sure you understand the context of your community. And there should be central, I mean, we all took sort of like grade school science classes. And the reality is that they're still accurate today. You have to form a hypothesis, figure out how you're gonna test the hypothesis and draw conclusions. But really what a hypothesis is, it's a declarative statement that assumes, presumes a question. <laughs> so really what you're doing with the hypothesis is you're answering a question. And so what you really, I think, need to be able to do is, is hone in on what are the fundamental questions that whatever your community you're in face. And then is your idea actually trying to address those questions? Mm -hmm. And if it's not trying to address those questions, then that doesn't mean it's a bad idea, but it does mean that it may not be impactful or hold value outside just say um, an academic pursuit. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow, that's very insightful. Um, there are there are a lot of uh, the, the idea of economics when, when it comes to um, research ideas is definitely more apparent nowadays uh, than I would say before, because I have also spoken to other professors who have gotten their PhD before 2008 and now, and they talk about how it seems that the economics of funding is driving the curiosity as opposed to just the, the love of being curious itself. So uh, on that note, uh, you are now the department chair of aerospace and mechanical engineering for University of Notre Dame. So you also have uh, power and influence over the curriculum for aspiring engineer and scientists. What would you say are some improvements that academic institutions can make for the people that are just starting off in their undergrads that maybe uh you know uh things that you did not have during your undergrad that you would like to have nowadays yeah i mean i can speak to that very specifically but i i will um sort of give you the caveat that i did my undergrad at notre dame and now right. department chair at notre dame so i have a very notre dame centric perspective mm -hmm. on this um and not every institution kind of goes through this but in in my mind there's three essential qualities to being an engineer um, or three three let's say areas of uh, that you need strength in one is what i call engineering science you need to understand the science that underlies the engineering discipline that mathematics is the language of that science you need to be conversant in that um, in the mathematics as well and so that's one axis the other axis is what I call engineering practice, or one of my colleagues likes to say knowledge and know-how. So how do you take that science and actually put it into practice? At the end of the day, engineers build things. That's what we do, right? We build the natural world. Um, and so you have to provide students with an opportunity to practice engineering, not just learn the science of engineering. 
And that can occur in lab courses, that can occur in design courses and experiential courses and things like that. And then the third axis is what I call engineering EQ. Now, a lot of people like to call it soft skills, and I hate that term because um, soft has a negative connotation. Um, but just like in, in sort of regular life, you have your IQ and your EQ, your emotional quotient and your intelligence quotient, right? Your emotional quotient is all those components of, of human interaction. And that's an essential for the modern engineer. Um, in, in the 20th century, when engineering really rose as a discipline and computers were not yet as powerful as they were, we were a commodity. You could literally, when I say literally, this was my life, you could literally walk into like a warehouse full of cubicles of engineers essentially all doing the exact same thing, hmm. right? But now, you know, we have computers that do analysis far quicker than engineers could do back then. We have much more sophisticated communication tools. We have access to a lot more knowledge than we did, whether it's be the internet or just our connectivity to people in other areas. And so the engineer of the 21st century is no longer a commodity. And the, the phrase I like to use is they're an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur in the sense that they have to start their own business and, you know, create a startup company, but an entrepreneur in the, in the sense that they need that skill set of not only the technical excellence, but also being able to communicate to a wide variety of stakeholders mm -hmm. and do it in a lot of different ways, whether it's written word, whether it's, it's presentations, whether it's, um, informal conversations, whether it's at a high level or a detailed level. And that's all, all that human interaction falls under what I call the engineering EQ, your engineering emotional quotient. And the best engineers are strong in all three. And the best engineering programs intentionally train students and educate them in all three. And, and, and so I think, you know, one of the things at Notre Dame that was a strength when I was a student and has been a, historically been a strength of the department is engineering science. We take more math than most other engineering programs and uh, we get into our fundamental courses at a greater level of detail. Where we perhaps lacked was in engineering practice and engineering EQ. Um, we allowed engineering EQ to happen naturally because of our core curriculum is larger than um, and and more expansive than most other universities, and that develops a lot of those EQ skills. But now I think we need to be more intentional about it. Um, in terms of engineering practice, we definitely needed to be more intentional. So I've been pleased if I can just sort of, you know, plug Notre Dame for a second here. I've been pleased uh, or very um, proud to, to have led an effort to redo our design sequence. Um, we created two more design courses prior to our senior design course. Uh, we built out a 2,000 square foot fabrication facility for undergrads, which is now being converted into a 10,000 square foot facility that will be open in um, two months. And so, and and so, we have finally caught up with the sense that engineering practice is just as important as engineering science, and we're providing students with the tools, space, resources, and um, uh, guidance. And, and teaching to help them achieve that component of it. Nice. Um, you know, people say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and some might say that grad students are a little on the old side when it comes to the academics. <laughs> uh, so 
the engineering practice, of course, we're getting it firsthand by you know, performing these research uh, that we're doing with instrumentation, whether it be a physical instrument, whether it's the computer for simulations. But like you said so yourself in the beginning, it's very narrow, right? We should be able to expand our horizons a little bit. So the old dog is very focused on his bone. He's very focused on getting his simulation done or hurt. There's uh, signal quality improved, and he's not really learning how to do other things, he or she. So how would you train or how would you help the graduate student nowadays to kind of push past the narrow vision that they have of completing the research project that they have, writing that paper, and expand yeah. a little more to be an overall uh, well-informed student? So, so I, I'll say from the perspective of a faculty member and the then from the perspective of a student. From perspective of a faculty member, I think it's important to give students well-rounded topics for research. I have a, sort of an unwritten rule, but I say it all the time, that in my research group, every dissertation has to have two of three components, a experimental component, a computational component, or a theoretical component. So it has to have at least two of those. And um, I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to achieve that without fail um, the entire time. Although one student didn't end up in his dissertation. His theoretical paper is just a theoretical paper, but we didn't put it in his dissertation. So, but, um, and so I think the perspective of the faculty member is really important here and ensuring that they, they provide opportunities. And again, this goes back to the sense that you're not an employee, right? We're an educational institution and we're providing an education. That's an important part of that component as well. I also encourage my students and some of them I've, I'm happy to say have joined us here today to, to explore those opportunities. Um, we have a program here at Notre Dame called LASER, which is um, a leadership program for graduate students. I don't know what the acronym stands for. I've been fortunate enough to have several students do it, including two that are currently doing it now. I have another student who asked and was very excited about pursuing a, I guess I didn't know this existed, a minor, <laughs> a graduate minor in the philosophy of science and has taken philosophy of science courses in addition to uh, their regular coursework as well. And I think that's wonderful. And I encourage that and I'm and I'm willing to embrace that. I do also hold their feet to the fire. You have to be productive. And that goes back to balancing your workload. You have to know when you have 30 minutes that you can get 30 minutes of work done and be and be able to focus and get it done. And so, you know, you can become too broad and too expansive without um, being excellent at anything if you don't focus. And so you got to make sure that when you broaden yourself, you're still focused so that you attain excellence in every, all those areas. Now, from the perspective of the graduate student, Right. One of one thing is to to make sure you're taking advantage of all the opportunities that you have. Go to see seminars that are not just the required seminars that graduate students have to go to. Go to those seminars. You know, if you if you can't spare that hour in a day, then you have not figured out how to be efficient with your time. That's really what it is. And so figure out how to be efficient with your time. Go to those seminars. Talk to your advisor. Tell them that you want to be able to touch different aspects of research um, and make sure you're on the same page with them and 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 have that conversation constantly and and make sure that 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 partnership is really driving you towards the educational outcomes you want and then the third one is 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 talk to all your friends and and, 
and colleagues, right? That's one of the best parts about Burke is those student offices and ask them what they're doing and look at them and and help them if they need help. And that was that was truly awesome when I was a student. Um, I can name, you know, Placidus Amama. I was like, how do I do, um, uh, how do I characterize these diamond films and grow? And he's like, let's go do it. And so we went and did it, right? And, and, and Aaron Franklin, hey, I'm seeing something weird. Can you come take a look? And we talk and then he'd ask me the same thing. And, and that kind of stuff, those types of partnerships allowed me to really broaden my understanding of, of sort of the research domain itself, but then also make me more effective in my own research um, at the same time. And so uh, have all those conversations. Right. Uh, unfortunately, of course, uh, due to the uh, COVID pandemic, the human-to-human -human interaction of research has kind of dissipated for a little bit. Um, as someone in your position, how do you think that institutions should go on to, quote-unquote, reestablish that peer-to-peer -peer communication that was, like you said it for yourself, in the offices, it was prevalent. Mm -hmm. We could turn our chair and talk to our buddy right here and ask, you know, how do we do this? But, of course, we can't do that now. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think there's there's two components of that. One component is we as a society, uh, whether it's academic or society as a whole, have to be willing to redefine what human interaction means. Mm -hmm. um, but the the fact is we have. We've done it naturally. Has the internet has come on board? Has mass travel has come on board? Has um, tools like Zoom and stuff have come on board? We've started to redefine it, right? So, so I think you, there has to be a willingness to, to, to recognize that connecting even over Zoom or over phone is still connecting, right? Mm -hmm. And that matters and it has lots of value, right? I think, I think the, the, comp the role of the university is to diminish those barriers as much as possible, right? Create as many opportunities as they can whether it's technology opportunities, such as making sure that everyone has the access to the tools they need to make these connections, to creating platforms like you are doing here, right? That in that create specific time, places, and locations for people to, to drive these. And then I think the responsibility finally lies on the individual. Um, even in a setting where we're all in person and there's lots of people in an office, it's very easy to focus on yourself. Building that network and growing, I would say, laterally requires intent. You have to be intentional about it. You have to believe there's value in it and you have to do it. And, and it's easy for some people. It's easy for extroverts. It's more challenging for people with more introverted personalities. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very introverted personality, which a lot of surprises a lot of people, but I do. And but the, the, the way I get over it is, is I recognize that there's a lot of value in making connections. And so I make as many connections as I can. I tell all my new faculty, you should be burning a hole through your coffee budget. You should be asking everyone in the office, everyone in the hallway out to coffee, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's how you, you're going to grow. That's how you're going to um, be successful. Wow. Thank you very much, Dr. Gofer. A very insightful conversation. I would like to open up the floor now to some Q&A from our audience members. Uh, feel free to unmute yourself or to write in the meeting chat. Play a little Jeopardy hey, David, it's Mary Jo. 
Hi, Mary Jo. That's it's great to see you. <laughs> I missed you something awful, sweetheart. I'll tell you. And <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I still remember um, for Fourth of July, you brought in that cheesecake <laughs> with the. With the cherries and the blueberries and the, the red, white, and blue. And yeah. I have made my wife recreate that on numerous <laughs> occasions. <laughs> yeah, and I'm retiring this year. Congratulations. That is well-deserved. I'm very excited, but I just wanted to tell you how proud I am and how I miss your ponytail. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I, I um. My wife also misses it, but I don't think anyone else does. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell her she has good taste. I will. And um, continue with the proper questions, but I just wanted to tell you I miss you. I miss Tim Fisher. I miss all you guys. So. Yeah, yeah. I just okay. was just emailing with Tim today, actually. Oh, okay. Thanks. Good to see you. Hey, Joe. Does anyone have questions? So I see Yu Hong um, wrote, it seems you're very passionate about optimizing educational experience. Is there any background story that makes you motivated in doing so? What do you think a graduate program, especially PhD track, should shape people to be? That is an outstanding question. Um, in my background, so I'm, I'm very fortunate that I come from a family where um, my father was highly educated. He never got his PhD. He, he, he was in a PhD program for like five years and then decided to get married and never wrote his dissertation. Mm -hmm. But but he was very intellectual and then worked at Notre, the University of Notre Dame himself for something like 40 years. So I, I've been around academics um, in that sense for a long time. And then the school that they sent me to, um, the motto of the school was, was um, truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, so barren bone and pulchrum uh, in Latin. and the emphasis was never on performance. In fact, we weren't graded on just scores. We were graded in what they called evaluated, where for every course, you were not only told your scores on exams, but you were told like, did you demonstrate a sense of wonder? Were you asking questions? Were you actively engaged? And I think that sort of experience and exposure um, from you know the time I was 11 years, 12 years old, really was formative in helping me understand why we educate, right? And, and why we educate, I think one of the challenges today, and we see this oftentimes in politics playing out, is we view education literally as a path to career. So it's a job training exercise. And, and there's some aspect of that that I understand, right? Um, jobs and careers are important, but education has value in and of itself, right? And if you go back and look at the history of universities, it wasn't just about educating students. It was also about discovering knowledge, right? And, and that's what we do as research. We educate the world by discovering new knowledge. And I think if we ever lose that, that perspective on education being about more than just job training, but gaining better insight into the world that we live in and the people that we interact with and how we should do that. And that that's whether it's a beautiful mathematical proof or a sociological study or political science, whatever it may be, if we lose that, that perspective on what education truly is, which is understanding the world we inhabit and how to inhabit it best, then, then we've lost something of our humanity. Um, and that's perhaps a little too philosophical, but I think that certainly drives me in that. And so what do I think a graduate program like a PhD track should shape people to be? 
it's just, I mean, I think one of the wonderful things about the PhD track is it develops researchers. And what do researchers do? They make new discoveries that advance our understanding of the world. And they can do that in, in, in ways that are not only fundamental, but in ways that are very applied, right? The development of new technology, which engineers really are focused on, allows us to better understand the world because it allows us to better control that world, right? And so I think there's a, just a ton of value in that um, as well. And so at, at a very high level, the graduate program should be shaping people to think along those lines, right? Um, not just have a specific skill set that's important, not just have a specific knowledge base that's also important, but also have a perspective and a viewpoint on what you, why, why they are doing what they're doing. And then they can carry that forward and be a lifelong learner throughout their career, whatever that may, may take them, and allow them to be more impactful in that career. Thank you. Uh, we have another question that uh, says that they would like to learn more about engineering, EQ, that you talked <laughs> about. Any uh, sources, or is this a, a term that you've coined yourself? Any I actually, we can get? I don't know. I, I think I started using it about a year ago, and I don't know that I heard it anywhere. So, um, <laughs> so I guess I coined it myself. Um, I just remember talking with someone and we are complaining about the term soft skills, making it sounding just derogatory, right? Like um, these are skills that have less worth. And, and I was arguing that they have equal worth. They're, they're an independent access um, on the sort of the, the three-dimensional space of excellence in engineering. And so I said, no, we should call it something else. And it came up with engineering EQ. So I, I can't say that there's any specific resource about it that I can point you to. There's lots of resources on soft skills, engineering communication. Um, go to your societies, uh, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, IEEE, um, uh, AICHE. Look at their webinars, look at their resources. They have tons and tons of resources on this. Um, uh, American Society of Engineering Education, if you have an academic bent. Uh, they they provide lots of resources that can help you sort of understand that and formulate it. And then if I do plug one thing, there's this book out. Um, it's called Engineering Justice, Transforming Engineering Education and Practice. And this came out about um, a year ago. And I think this is a really important book. It talks about um, sort of issues of equality and equity uh, in, in engineering and engineering education itself. But a lot of things they're talking about also point to sort of the EQ side of engineering. And so I think that's a, a helpful resource. Thank you very much for that. Ah, yes, we have which skill slash quality you would rate as most important for succeeding in a PhD program? Is it having an involved advisor, communicating well with colleagues? Is there <laughs> a particular one that you put on the top of the list? So, so in terms of like a personal quality, I think that the, the two um, things that that are essential are um, curiosity or creativity, I think, and then persistence. In educational circle, circles, the right word that or the word that's being used is grit, right? Which is a willingness to work consistently on a problem that won't pay off for a long time. <laughs> but that and that's really just persistence. And and that's what it takes to do research. That's what it takes to make discoveries. Right. Um, 
I think we we sometimes uh, confuse young people when we try to excite them about STEM by making it seem like research is a eureka moment. And you might have a eureka moment yourself, mm -hmm. but then it takes two years of grit to prove that the eureka moment was right. right. And so I think um, when I talk to, when I advise, and I advise many undergraduate students about um, whether they should go to graduate school, the question I have is, why do you want to do it? You have to know your why, because to do it well, you have to have this grit. And if you don't know why you're doing it, grit won't get you very far. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think I've, we talked about this, Mauricio. You have we to did. know why. You have to yeah. know why you're doing it. Why do you want that PhD? And and it can't be because I couldn't get a job, so I might as well go to grad school. It has to be a very intentional act, and then you have to apply that persistence and that that creativity. Lots of other skills are important, but those are the two I think that are, are absolutely necessary. I would like to thank you, Dr. Go. David, thank you very much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to, to talk with us, to share with us about your your formative years, uh, your insight into academia. Well, we appreciate it very much, and I appreciate it as well as one of your former students. Thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to speak with us. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and it's been great to see you and to see Mary Jo again. And I just want to say to all of the, the students on this and that perhaps watch it afterwards, um, you guys are lucky to be at Purdue University. It is a great institution. I loved my time there. Um, and so really make the most of it.